With your host, Andrew Donaldson, this is Heard Tell. Uh, welcome to Herd Tell. I'm Andrew Donaldson. Thank you so much for joining us with the most precious thing you have, your time, as we try to turn down the noise of the news cycle, get to the information we need to discern the times we live in. That's what we try to do on this program every time we're here. Uh, you've probably heard tell by now the news that Queen Elizabeth II has died, 96 years old, 70 years on the throne. A remarkable piece of history has passed on besides the fact that she was also a mother, a grandmother, great grandmother, and all those other things that the human being inside the marbleized uh, view of her being the queen of England. It's a remarkable when you look at the stats where there was a picture that went off online about her meeting the first U.S. president she met as queen, Harry Truman. Our current president, the last president she met with, Joe Biden, was only nine years old at the time. She has been queen of England through almost 30% of American history, through many, many presidents, through 15 different prime ministers in her own country, including uh, meeting with the newest prime minister, Liz Truss, just a couple days ago in what would turn out to be the final public photos of her long and illustrious life. An amazing career, an amazing piece of living history that has passed on. A little later in the program, we're going to talk about uh, something that our friend Ben Harris said back during our 4th of July episode, Ben Harris, of course, works in the halls of Parliament. And he was talking about how for the British people, uh, and we were discussing the World War II generation, that that would be the real passing uh, when the Queen would pass away. And that would be the generation break for them, kind of seen as the last of that generation for them over there. And it really does kind of feel that way. Um, no disrespect to the new king, Charles III, he's going to be stylizing himself but it just ain't going to be the same. It's an amazing thing of consistency, how she was on the throne for 70 years, one of the longest reigns of any monarch ever, and how much history has changed since then. But it's also remarkable, we think, at times like this, to reflect on things like death, like life, like how the world works. There's a phrase in literature about how things happen gradually than suddenly. It's never more true than with history. History has a tendency to gradually get real sudden on you. We've all, most of us that have lived a little bit, just kind of got used to the Queen of England being there. Now, we all knew in the back of our minds she was not immortal. At some point, this day would come. But something that's that consistent for a long time, when it is suddenly taken away, it seems sudden. No matter how gradual it may have been, like her declining health over the years, which she handled with a great deal of dignity, and you would expect nothing else from her from her long life. Now, there's a nasty part of social media that comes out on things like this because there's the old axiom about, well, don't speak ill of the dead. I don't hold to that. Some of the dead need ill spoken about them. But you can usually wait until the body grows cold and you can usually wait for the mourning period to end and you don't have to jump on Twitter right off the bat and pile on to whatever issues they were. The Queen's reign was not scandal free. We know the private lives of the royals are something of a mess, especially the new King Charles when you get into Diana stuff and some other things. Uh, we know about the accusations of, against Andrew and those sorts of things. So there's no such thing as perfect. And we can hash those out some other times. 
Queen Elizabeth also reigned over a great period of change through the 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, all the way up through today. And there's probably some criticism to level there as well. But you can wait until the body gets cold and you don't get Twitter points or Facebook points for jumping on first and piling on. It's not really about the passing of history or what's going on. It's just a way of people to feel way more righteous than they otherwise would be and to get themselves some attention. It doesn't really say anything about the Queen of England or whoever the famous person passed. It does say a little something about you, though, that you think when somebody dies, the first thing you can do is figure out a way to elevate your own viewpoints and get people to give you either outrage feedback, which some people really seem to enjoy, or get seal claps from your in-group. That's not very healthy. I would remind you all, as somebody who's been as close to death as you can get in this life without actually committing all the way to it, that we should all be very humble about death, whether you're the Queen of England or somebody who's unknown by the rest of humanity. It's coming for us all. Everybody's going to get their turn at death. So you might be a little more humble in how you deal with it because it's inevitable. It's going to be gradual. Life's long for most folks if you're lucky, but it will be sudden. And I bet if you could ask the Queen of England in her last moments, those 96 years went by in a flash. Almost every elderly people person you talk to will tell you the same thing. My goodness, it went by so fast. Maybe we should take some more time in the moment to slow it down a little and appreciate what we do have while we're able to enjoy it. Because it is going to go fast. And then it's going to be over. And it'll be somebody else online talking about you when you're no longer here. Give them good things to say. Leave a nice clean timeline for them to view. And more importantly, don't worry about the noise on the internet or in the news media. Make sure you're like the queen was in her last hours, surrounded by family and friends and loved ones. Because that's really the important part. Because what comes in the next life, those are the only things you're going to get to take with you. Not titles, not crowns, and not your social media posts. More heard tell right after this. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, this is going to be a little touchy, but we're going to work through it because this man is so smart. He's going to explain it so even I understand. Talk a little First Amendment today. Uh, <laughs> that's something we talk about frequently on our show. Adam Steinbaugh from FIRE is with us. Uh, sir, thank you so much for the time. Really appreciate you joining us today. Happy to be here. Uh, let's start big picture before we get into the specifics of this case, because here's something we talk about on our show a lot. Things don't happen in a vacuum. They happen in a sequence. We say things online. We say things in the media. Things become buzzwords. But when you go to do legislation, when you go to do a lawsuit, when you're talking about the law, you have to write these things down in black and white. So with that in mind, sir, what is the legal definition of woke? Because if we're going to write laws about it. You think we would have a common definition of it. Do we? No. Uh, woke is a uh, a term that escapes definition. Uh, it means different things to different people, uh, and its definition can almost change with the tone of your voice. Uh, so if you say, yeah, I'm woke, uh, maybe that is, uh, <laughs> you have a specific definition of that. But if someone says you're woke, uh, they probably have a very different meaning of what woke is. But that's and I'm doing that a little teasingly, but that's kind of the crux of the problem when you legislate or try to do law with something like this is you can't just say something like a buzzword on social media. You have to write it down and you got to write it down in black and white. So when you get to something like the Stop Woke Act and they're using that as an acronym, we'll get into that as well. This is not just a spouting off on lines. Once you write it in black and white. It has to go up for judicial review. It has to match up to the Constitution. There's layers of why when you put something in black and white that it matters. That's the piece of this argument I think a lot of people just kind of skip over. It's like you can't just say you don't like something. You not only write legislation about it, legally you have to define it, right? You have to define it and you have to do it in such a way that people can read it and understand what is prohibited and what is not. So that is especially important with speech because if you have terms that uh, maybe are nuanced or vague uh, or just incomprehensible, uh, people will look at the law and say, you know, it's more rational for me to not say anything than to say something that uh, is going to risk consequences, whether for me or my colleagues or my institution. And that is critical here where you have a law that uh, lists a number of uh, viewpoints that you are not allowed to endorse. Uh, and if you do endorse them or you're, or a uh, court or your institution or uh, a panel of lawmakers uh, thinks that you endorse these viewpoints, your institution could lose tens of millions of, do of dollars in funding. So that, that puts a big old thumb on the scales in terms of uh, preventing people from uh, being courageous enough to uh, articulate concepts or discuss concepts uh, in higher education. And that is the last place where you want to make people timid uh, of debating ideas. Here's another place where the terminology comes in. We talk about things like academic freedom. Um, that's kind of a vague term. People kind of generally know that, but where does that become problematic? Because we understand academic freedom of, oh, I'm going to say something and you're going to disagree and we're going to hash it out in a classroom setting. I think that's what most people have in mind. If you had a legal definition of that, though, it's a lot more vague what people can and can't do. And since, let's just be honest here, a lot of these colleges are state institutions and then you have private institutions. That's where freedom of speech and the law on freedom of speech starts to get a lot more complicated, right? Well, it's 
there is no, you know, there, there's a case in the 11th Circuit that says that there's no independent right to academic freedom. So, you know, if you look at the, the First Amendment, there is uh, nothing in there that explicitly says academic freedom. But that comes from tradition and it comes from uh, the way that we conceptualize our universities and colleges, which is that we want these to be places where people learn from competing ideas and from being uninhibited to discuss those ideas. Uh, so uh, whether or not you label it academic freedom uh, or you identify the right uh, via the First Amendment, uh, you know, it is uh, important to protect. And at public universities and colleges, you know, because they are state institutions, the First Amendment applies to uh, the way that they regulate student and faculty speech. Uh, and uh, at private institutions, the First Amendment doesn't apply, but most of those institutions or most educational institutions promise academic freedom or freedom of speech to their students and faculty, because who would want to go to a college that doesn't promise that? So let's talk about this law specifically. There's two parts to this. There's the political part, and then there's the legislative law part of it. Start with the legislative part of it. The accusation against it, and we're going to post to link directly to the legislation. Please read it for yourself, like we always say on our program. Read this thing for yourself. The accusation is there's a lot of vague language and that it's not specific and that the things it is specific on are things that legally are going to be problematic. Is that a good Reader's Digest version of the problems here? Yeah, I think so. Uh, it is uh, a law that, you know, reading it, you know, I... I'm a First Amendment lawyer. Uh, I My organization has uh, defended faculty on both the right and the left for uh, a very long time. And that is my role, is to be able to tell people what they can and can't say in the classroom and be able to defend them when they uh, are approaching the line of what is uh, prohibited or permissible. Uh, I take a look at this law and I can't, I can't give people a good prediction of what it does prohibit and what it protects. Yeah, Adam Steinbaugh joining us from FIRE. When you decided to make this into a lawsuit, um, there's another terminology thing. We always think about it. And I was like, well, I'm going to sue somebody. Well, it doesn't really work that way. You have to have standing, you have to have cause, and you have to have you know a reason to do it. Walk us through the general, walk us through the general public here, your standing, why you think you have a case here, and what you're hoping to accomplish with the lawsuit. Well, uh, we have a case because when you have uh, lawmakers and uh, the governor uh, team up and pass a statute, and this is you know one of the, the main legislative goals that they had. They had a uh, you know multiple press conferences and press releases, and you know really heralded this law. So they're very serious about this law. Uh, and uh, when you have that dynamic, and when you have a law that uh, affects speech. Uh, and that purports to regulate speech, that can have a chilling effect. And uh, if you are a faculty member, uh, you know, as here, a faculty member who teaches history, who teaches about uh, uh, issues of race and history, uh, and you have to put together a syllabus or you are marching into class to, uh, you know, debate these uh, things or discuss these things with students or lecture on these subjects, if you look at the law and you can't figure out whether or not your speech is prohibited uh, or protected by the First Amendment, uh, you are going to rationally uh, refrain from speaking or lecturing or even getting close to these subjects. Uh, so when you have an objective chill like we do here, uh, it is not just someone who uh, is coming in and 
uh, is just kind of theorizing uh, and spitballing that maybe the law applies. Um, you know, it's uh, there's a good argument that the law applies here. Uh, and uh, for that, you can go to a court and you can say, look, uh, I can come before the court, even though I haven't been prosecuted or uh, suspended or terminated or otherwise punished under the law, I can come to the court before that happens in order to get clarification about what the law does protect or what it does prohibit and whether or not it's constitutional, because we want to protect the ability of people to be able to speak without being punished for it. So uh, normally when you have a violation of constitutional rights, you have to wait for the enforcement of the law against you. But the First Amendment is different in that we want people to, to be able to come to a court uh, and to get clarification about that so that everyone can speak. Yeah. Now that's the legal side of this. There's a political and a public side to these things, obviously, because, you know, let's be honest, you had to write a press release about why you're doing a lawsuit. It's just part of the business, right? When you're discussing that piece of it, before we even get into the particulars of it, what is it about these types of things? When you have a politically charged thing, you mentioned it, you're a First Amendment lawyer, you defend people on the right and the left and whatever else. Why does the First Amendment have to be a double-edged sword that goes both ways? It, we, it, it has to be something that also offends you, not just that it also gives you a right to speak out publicly. Just walk people through why it's so important not to just go after it's like, well, I want to protect what is meaningful to me, because that may not be the same for somebody else. And that gets to the heart of what a right is, doesn't it? Yeah, it's the First Amendment is... Uh, uh, or it's supposed to be a viewpoint and content neutral right. So uh, the limitations that you impose on speech are limitations that are going, you know, if, if those limitations are permissible, if those are limitations are constitutionally viable, they're going to be applied to uh, your enemies as well as your allies. So uh, if deep offense to a particular idea uh, or particular speech is sufficient to remove speech from the protection of the First Amendment, that's a broad range of power, and it's going to be abused by people who hold power because the First Amendment is, uh, at its core, a counter-majoritarian right. It is uh, the defense for people who uh, are on the losing side of popularity. Uh, so it is what protects unpopular speech. And that is not, you know, some speech is going to be popular in some parts of the country uh, and unpopular in others. Uh, and if a state can take a list of ideas that they uh, have determined are uh, extremely offensive uh, and you know just plumb wrong, and they say if you endorse these ideas, that is de facto discrimination, that's a tool that you could see a, a blue state legislature picking up on the other end uh, and saying if you criticize these ideas or if you you know, endorse criticism of these ideas, that is discrimination. And now what you say, will, uh, if you're a professor or a student in a, in a given state, uh, whether or not what you say is uh, discriminatory will depend on which state you're in. And that's not how the First Amendment should work. No. Adam Steinbaugh joined us from FIRE. We're talking about the uh, Stop Woke Act. That woke there is an acronym down in Florida. We're going to continue to talk about this. We're going to get into a couple of the points he points out specifically in this bill. There's already been some legal things going on with it. We'll discuss that and some more about the First Amendment and some nomenclature that you see all over your social media. We're going to ask him about it, see whether it holds up to snuff or not. Adam Steinbaum continues to join us on Her Tell right after this.
Uh, welcome back to Herd Tell, talking some First Amendment with our friend Adam Steinbaugh. He's from FIRE, a wonderful organization. If you're not following you need to. They might make you mad from time to time, as he said, because they defend everybody. They're all about the First Amendment and freedom. Uh, let's talk about something specific in this bill, and you brought it up as part of the lawsuit. Uh, there's vague language in here, but there's also some really specific language that is problematic. Um, when you dig down into it, you pointed out that there's prohibits instructions on eight specific concepts, race, color, national origin, sex, that run counter to the government official's notion of, and in air quotes here, freedom. How much of this is a nomenclature problem and how much of this is a constitutionalism? Because again, here we go. We got terminology like, you know, freedom, race, color. These are things that are all over every Supreme Court case we read. Why are they problematic in this bill when they are in this specific sequence for this specific reason? Uh, it's because it's regulating speech and it's saying that you know these are the concepts, or these are the ideas, or these are the conclusions that you are not allowed to endorse. Uh, and under the First Amendment, there is no such thing as a false idea. Uh, you know, it gets it gets a little bit trickier when it comes to the hard sciences because people can uh, you know come to uh, more objective definitions uh, in the hard sciences. But when you're talking about the you know so-called soft sciences or the social sciences uh, or uh, matters of uh, race uh, and um, you know just the the social makeup of our country. These are charged and difficult issues, uh, and those you can only win out uh, or you can only resolve or try to resolve uh, through debate. Uh, it is not something that uh, a legislature can dictate by fiat as you know. Here's the winner in the marketplace of ideas. Um, so. That is not a power that a legislature should have, uh, and it is important that we uh, defend that or contest that at every turn. Now, your lawsuit is not the only lawsuit on this topic. There's other legal action going. In fact, there's already been part of the provisions blocked by a judge. But your lawsuit is very specific. You are narrowing it down to the higher education portion of this. You're also not going into the race and gender stuff. Why did you limit it to higher education? And you already somewhat touched on the topic of this, but what is it about the opinion of higher education faculties? This has really been the front side of um, First Amendment speech because we're hearing about all this stuff, you know, academic freedom in the classroom. We see all the viral videos of people arguing with professors and protesters in classrooms and outside speakers. This is something that's really in the forefront of a lot of the cultural edge of our politics right now. Why did you narrow it in this lawsuit to focus specifically on the higher education? Well, you know, FIRE has been in the higher education uh, freedom business for uh, you know, about a quarter century now. Uh, so a little bit of it is just that that is what we are used to defending. Uh, but I think more importantly is that there is a distinction between higher education and K through 12. K through 12, obviously the people who uh, are sitting at the desk in the K through 12 classroom uh, are generally not adults. Uh, they are generally not there by choice. Uh, they are legally compelled to be there. And the function of K through 12 has a greater emphasis on communicating community values and instilling community values to uh, students. So that involves uh, a greater leeway of uh, curricular choices or or gives greater leeway to the government uh, to define what those curricular choices are uh, and for the community to, to define its own values. If you contest that or contrast that with higher education, 
these are students who are by and large adults. Uh, you can hand them a rifle and send them uh, overseas to serve our country, uh, and uh, they can uh, sign up for uh, very expensive um, loans in order to go to college. And you know they are capable of making their own decisions. Uh, they can vote. They are fully, uh, you know, full participants in our society. Uh, and they should not be shielded from ideas simply because they are offensive. So uh, aside from, you know, who is in the classroom, the purpose of higher education uh, involves different functions than K through 12. Uh, so you go to college in order to encounter different ideas and then to contrast those and discuss them and figure out where you stand on those ideas. That's uh, you know, while there, there are some gray areas uh, in K through 12, you can imagine a high school senior is probably going to be a little bit more rebellious and maybe uh, looking to uh, ideas that they might find subversive or um, uh, anyway, they, they uh, the, the purpose of higher education is to encounter ideas that are different, whereas K through 12 uh, is to uh, be sort of on the receiving end of the ideas that society wants to impart. Uh, and that doesn't mean you have to agree with them. Uh, I think that uh, the lesson from Tinker B. Des Moines, uh, which you may recall is the case in which uh, students wore black armbands in class to protest against the Vietnam War, uh, the lesson from that is that uh, students can dissent from whatever the majoritarian view is, uh, even if they are in a high school or middle school. Uh, but the information they receive uh, is going to be different than it is in higher ed. So uh, higher ed and K-12 are just fundamentally different, and it's important to protect the uh, open marketplace of ideas in higher education. And uh, that is particularly critical where you have lawmakers or state legislature trying to dictate what will be orthodox and what is not. Yeah, but you raise an excellent point, something that doesn't get discussed here either is, when you're dealing with secondary education as opposed to higher education, you've got an additional layer there because they're not adults. So you have parents. So what is the law? You know, we have this debate. We've had it with the guns and medical care and everything. You know, are you magically an adult at age 18? Should your First Amendment rights change when you magically become an adult? And does your parents speak for you before? That seems like something down the road that's really going to get hashed out when we discuss these. Because again, your lawsuit's focusing on higher ed, but there's going to be other lawsuits about the high school edge of this. That's something that's not that's not going to really get solved anytime soon. It's going to remain contentious of how much speech can a parent guard from the school system over their child, right? I think so. Uh, but I, I want to distinguish, you know, make a, a draw a line between what a K through 12 institution imparts on kids in their class, uh, as opposed to uh, what students choose to believe uh, or to say or to read. Uh, so it's one thing to say, okay, in the following, you know, in the, the following periods of your classes today, you're going to learn the following subjects and this is how they're going to be taught. It's another thing to say, these are the types of books you were allowed to check out from the library and exercising your own choice. Because students uh, you know, especially as they get older, they're autonomous. They have their own rights. Uh, and, uh, you know, parents have uh, certainly important uh, rights in determining uh, or guiding the education of their students. Uh, but that doesn't mean that students, uh, that the First Amendment rights uh, for, uh, you know, a young person uh, turn on or off on the day they turn 18.
Folks, if you've listened to the Herd Tell program, you've heard our friend Gabriella Hoffman, but you need to make sure you're checking out her podcast, District of Conservation. It's a podcast exploring the nuances of true conservation efforts from D.C. and beyond. From topic discussions to exclusive interviews with conservation and energy newsmakers, Gabriella keeps listeners appraised of the latest news stories while elevating important voices. Listen to District of Conservation on Apple Podcasts or wherever podcasts are played. Okay, you're a First Amendment lawyer. For the purposes of this conversation, we're not going to hold that against you. But we are going to ask you some questions (laughs) about it because you may have noticed that online, especially on the interwebs and on things like Twitter and Facebook, there's a lot of bad legal advice regarding the First Amendment floating around. So we're going to ask you a couple questions about a few of them. Uh, Let's start with one of everybody's favorites that's just gotten flogged to death in the wrong direction. Uh, Yelling fire in a crowded theater. Uh, Walk us through that one a little bit because everybody seems to want to bend that one out whenever there's a debate online. I don't think they really realize what they're actually saying and where that trope comes from. Just deal with that one real quick for us. Well, it was a, a metaphor and it's it's catchy. It's clever. It, it captures a concept uh, for a lot of people, which is that you know some speech is unprotected, but that's a truism. Uh, and I think that uh, what people tend to deploy it as is to, as, as a you know, sort of a, an escape hatch to say, you know, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, so therefore, whatever speech I dislike is also unprotected. And that's not how the First Amendment works, and it is not helpful uh, because it, uh, that truism doesn't give you an argument. It doesn't explain why the speech that you think is unprotected or should be unprotected should be unprotected. Uh, so uh, if someone is saying, well, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, like that's that's true, but it doesn't tell you anything. Uh, and uh, it is almost always being deployed as a means of trying to argue that there should be less free speech. And it's almost always wrong. It's funny you phrase it that way, because one of the things talking about the lawsuit previously that was mentioned in the press release, y'all said was like, you can't censor yourself to free speech. That seems like such a simple line. And yet you could usually do this for a lot of government regulation, frankly, not just you can't self-censor free speech to more free speech. It's never going to work that way, is it? No, uh, I think that uh, government le- or the First Amendment leaves choices about what to say and how to say it to the speaker. Uh, and a lot of you know what is contested about the First Amendment or or what the First Amendment serves is about leaving the decision or leaving decisions uh, about what speech is appropriate to the listener and to the speaker. Uh, so uh, if you are sitting down at Thanksgiving dinner uh, and uh, uh, you disagree with your relatives about whatever the latest political hoopla is, uh, you might self-censor in order to have a good discussion about, you know, family goings-ons uh, at dinner. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, 
it's it's sort of a truism that uh, you're not going to self-censor uh, your way to more free speech. Uh, but it's also true, I think, that you know the the government is not going to be able to uh, credibly decide what speech is appropriate and what speech is not appropriate in order to try to come up with a more free speech environment. Uh, uh, here's a good one. We've heard this one a bunch over the Speech cannot cause harm by itself. Well, that's kind of one of those that, well, it depends on the definition of is there, but speech cannot cause harm by itself. That's one we keep hearing over and over again. Uh, I think it depends on what you mean by harm. Uh, speech is powerful. It can hurt you. It can really make people mad. Uh, and we use freedom of speech as a means to uh, avoid violence. It is a way for society to resolve problems without just resorting to violence. Um, it's, you know, it's, we talk through problems. Uh, and uh, that means that uh, some speech is going to hurt. It is going to be, it is going to cause you know, some form of harm, but it is unlikely that the type of harm, because harm is a sort of a subjective uh, and vague word. Um, we don't want to limit speech just because it causes harm, because that harm might not be tangible. It might not be something that we can objectively identify. And if you can't objectively identify tangible harm, uh, and you try to regulate speech on that basis, that gives uh, government uh, and the authorities a lot of leeway to punish speech, which they will inevitably abuse. So you're saying sticks and stones may break my bones, but names can never hurt me is not sound legal advice when it comes to the First Amendment? Uh, I generally don't get my legal advice from anything that rhymes. That's a good rule of thumb to have. <laughs> um, continuing to talk to Adam Steinbar, our friend. Here's one that folks get in a little bit of a twist. Um, again, this one depends because I've, I've actually said this one myself sometimes. So uh, the best remedy for disfavored speech is more speech or the other, you know, if you put it in the vernacular, like we normal people talk, the best remedy for bad speech is more good speech. How's that one land with you in the First Amendment, do you think? I like it, but that doesn't mean that more speech is always the remedy. It's just the remedy that the First Amendment prefers to censorship. So uh, if you encounter, you know, someone standing on a street corner who is trying to explain to you that the moon landing was faked, you debating them is probably not going to be the best remedy to that you walking away might be the best remedy to that. Uh, so uh, that is the solution to free speech uh, or to offensive speech is something that the First Amendment leaves to the person you know, encountering it. Uh, they can answer back, they can give a full-throated response or they could walk away. Uh, but what they can't do is censor. Yeah, and that one leads us to our final one that I've got lined up for you. Censorship, everybody thinks online, social media restrictions are a form of censorship. Does the First Amendment trump that little box everybody clicked and didn't read all the information about terms of service? Or are their free speech rights really being trampled when they get a timeout on Twitter? Well, I think there's, you know, free speech is a cultural value. The First Amendment refers to the freedom of speech. Uh, and there's the First Amendment as a legal principle. Uh, the First Amendment generally protects uh, the content, content decisions by Twitter and its users. So uh, if you go and block someone on Twitter, uh, you're probably inhibiting their speech. You're definitely preventing them from talking to you and talking to the other people that you talk to. Uh, and you know that is a limitation on their uh, you know broader freedom of speech. But it has nothing to do with the First Amendment because the First Amendment 
uh, only limits government actors, and Twitter is not a government actor. Uh, so uh, if Twitter uh, decides to promote particular speech or to remove particular speech, uh, that may be an illiberal decision, that may be a bad decision, uh, but it is also a decision that is protected by the First Amendment because the First Amendment defers that decision to people, not the government. Yeah. Good stuff. Adam Steinbaum joining us. Uh, speaking of censoring and editing, uh, we were looking at your Twitter feed, my friend, and, you know, friends, hold friends accountable. On September the 1st, you tweeted, and I'm quoting, the edit button is a good idea, and I, lowercase <laughs> I, will edit this tweet if it turns out to be a bad idea. Adam Steinbaum, defend your tweet. Uh, can we edit this later? <laughs> I will not defend anything. You know, there's some speech I will defend, but I cannot defend anything I say. That is just over the line. <laughs> I'm actually, see, this, this is actually a good teachable point, though, because ever since they started on Twitter, I've been on Twitter about what, four or five years now, everybody always talks about the edit button. And it's like, I don't know that I want an edit button because I can either delete the whole thing or I can just fix it or I can just leave it. I usually just leave it because it's become part of the thing as everybody knows I can't spell and I can't pronounce things right. I just kind of leave it. You know, where do you fall on something like that? Should people have a right to fix their mistakes? It's kind of a silly thing when it comes to Twitter, but there there is a free speech concept buried in there of like, do you have a right to fix your own mistake? Uh, I don't know if I'd frame it as a right. Uh, I think it is useful. I like the idea of an edit button because I think it allows people to, uh, you know, people get things wrong. Uh, and, you know, there are going to be some scoundrels out there who, uh, we'll just never correct a mistake on Twitter. But some people, you know, uh, once you get a lot of traffic going to a tweet uh, and, and you think you've made a mistake, you might want to alert everyone else to say like, hey, I was wrong. You know, I'm fessing up. Here's what I was wrong about. That might do a lot of good to uh, protect against, uh, you know, misinformation or people's mistakes. Uh, so um, I like the idea as long it is, as it is very transparent that there has been an edit because I think uh, it's important to ward against uh, people abusing that and you know, essentially fooling people, which I will absolutely abuse. Uh, but uh, I think that as long as it's transparent and you can see when something has been edited and how it has been edited, I think that's helpful. Yeah. Um, just full disclosure here, we self-censor because you also had a spammerous joke in there that we let go. So we weren't trying to be too harsh with you. Adam Steinbaugh, <laughs> uh, joining us from fire. Appreciate your time on this. That's a lighter side of a very heavy topic, but we need to do that to get through the days we live in. Where can folks follow you and follow the work at fire and keep up with this lawsuit as it goes forward until we see you again on her tell again, my friend. Uh, well, you can check out our website, thefire.org, T-H-E-F-I-R-E, uh, .org. Um, or, uh, and you could also follow us on Twitter. Uh, our Twitter handle is the fire org. Uh, and I would not recommend following me on Twitter because I will abuse that. Yeah. The fire is an excellent organization. Uh, kind of what the ACLU used to be when they still had their faculties about them. They defend everybody. They defend free speech, uh, like it, don't like it, good, bad, indifferent, great organization. And, very much appreciate your time and expertise today, sir. Really looking forward to having you back again, and we'll talk soon. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you.
Welcome back to Herd Tell. Uh, with us watching the news of the Queen and then the news later in the day that she had passed away, it brought to remembrance something we talked about uh, back a couple of months ago, our 4th of July special that we do. It's become a bit of a tradition the last two years. We talked to our friend Ben Harris over in the UK. We always thought it'd be fun on the 4th of July to talk to a, one of our friends over there, uh, talk a little American independence and the status of the special relationship. He brought up a point uh, about the queen and about what was then uh, something he said he'd hope was far in the future, her inevitable death and how our view of the World War II generation was a little different over there. He thought that when she died, that would be the real breaking point of the end of that generation for them. Now that it is, thought we'd revisit that conversation. This is from our 4th of July special. Our good friend Ben Harris, who joins us frequently on the program from over there. Uh, enjoy this clip. We joke about it. One of the great honors in my life, though, and and I've got this on my mind because Woody Williams just died. That's the last Medal of Honor recipient uh, from World War II generation for mm. the American side. I, saw that, yeah. I remember I was, and it just happened by accident, I was in London for the 60th anniversary of D-Day. And I, I was actually, you know, uh, on the HMS Belfast. They were actually filming a, a documentary on the fantail of the ship. I got to meet some of the British um, veterans of that con. Just one of the real honors of my life. I'm just just, saw, just saying, sitting and talking to these guys because they were all queued up to go do interviews and things. And just by happenstance, I got to talk to them. Um, that generation's almost gone. Uh, we're very aware of it in America, of course. Mm-hmm. Same thing in England. That generation is just about gone. I don't know what the numbers there are. We're down. We're down into the low um, hundred thousands and dwindling quickly. Is there a sense in England as well? Because that's kind of the last war we really fought together. Not that we weren't in, you know, Afghanistan and Iraq and other parts of the world, but that's the one everybody thinks about is us coming to World War II, Britain standing alone, and yeah. the American came alongside. That's just a big part of the mythology for both of our countries. Uh, is there a danger of that sliding into history a little bit with that generation passing away? Is there an understanding of like, this is a title shift that this generation is almost gone and we're just going to read about them. We're not going to be able to talk to them anymore. Um, I don't think the special relationship or whatever you want to call the US-UK relationship will change much in relation to that. But what, the one thing I do feel, the one thing that will be the big change is, uh, and hopefully it's not for a few years yet, is when the Queen dies, because that will be, she is seen as sort of the last remaining um, sort of, you know, she actually did serve in World War II uh, to an extent as a mechanic, I think, as a volunteer mechanic. So, and and she is seen as sort of the last uh, remaining holdover from that time. So I think when she does go, that will be... That being, and more than anything else, a big thing because it will signal a sort of change of the guard. And as you, like you said, it's the numbers are, are quickly dwindling. Um, you know, it's you know, I think I think to, to have it to have served in World War Two now, you have to be close to a hundred at least now. I mean, you get into that point now, so it's it's uh, unfortunately that's a bit of history we're losing. But I think it's the, the World War Two because it's seen as the last good war that is still in people's minds, and I think even people who who don't even have any family they spoke to who served in the wars. People who don't even have grandparents who were who are old enough to have served in it. I do think there still is a very much alive today because we do learn about it a lot in school. It's driven, it's driven to us a lot. You know, Winston Churchill and sort of the mythology around Britain in World War Two is a big thing here still. So I don't think that we will lose that talking point. I think that'll always be there because I know you guys also have a similar. Uh, you know, you see World War II as the last good war as well. And it's, it's you know, Korea is forgotten. Vietnam is, is sort of seen as the bad war. And it's it's very similar over here in terms of how you see the war, World War II. Um, so, 
I don't think we're going to lose much. I, I lose much in terms of how we communicate with each other. But of course, the experiences that um, the first time experiences, you know, that we lose will be, you know, impossible to, to value. Yeah, it's interesting because just in my lifetime, I'm not that old. I'm just I just turned 42. When I was a kid, if you saw any elderly man, you basically assumed they were a World War II vet. That's how you know just you just assumed it. And now they're almost all gone just just in the last 30, 40 years. It's just the way time works. It's a really fascinating thing. Uh, ben Harris, our good friend over in England, we're going to keep talking to him about England, about America, the special relationship, a little politics, too, just because uh, he, he runs amongst the halls of parliament. So he's got all the good scuttlebutt. We'll touch in on that. We'll continue with our friend Ben Harris. It's Independence Day edition of Her Tell right after tell for this friday uh hope you all have a great weekend lined up i know we're going to try to do some family stuff encourage you to do the same uh part of turning down the noise of the news cycle is to get away from it every now and then get that perspective back do that with your family get outside and enjoy some of this fall weather we're having uh do what we're going to do take in a high school football game get some of the good stuff in life going in your own lives it's important that helps keep perspective when we have to dig into the topics of the day like the really heavy stuff in politics the sticky stuff in culture and the things that we have to work through to try to discern our times a little bit better we would love to hear from you we've done whole segments and even whole shows just based off of your feedback things you wanted covered uh sometimes you bring up a story and say why isn't this being covered and we covered it uh at herd tell show on the Gmail, Herd Tell Show on the Twitter, either one. We'd love to hear from you. Be nice, keep your bearing. We'd love to hear from you. Also, wherever you're watching or listening to this program, uh, the uh, YouTube channel, any of the podcasting platforms, if you can leave a comment and a rating, that would be great. You want to do us a real good solid, you can share us on your social media. We don't advertise outside of our own social media platforms, so that would be a great help to us, let people know our little programs worth checking out. So until we see you again on Monday or you listen to the Twice on Sunday program or any of the best of heard tells or any of the various ways we try to bring our version of turning down the noise of the news cycle to you, we hope you and yours are well. We hope you're well fed. We'll talk to you again real soon on Herd Tell. All the music on her tell is provided under a creative content license from monstercat.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.